This is a Triple J podcast. We can end the climate wars. Rugged up up top, tiny little booty shorts. Oh, I sold a kidney to buy that jacket. I was riding a lot of fences. What do you think makes a good voter? Do you think it matters how politically engaged people are? If they're getting their news from a lot of different sources, staying up to date about the world, I don't know, following legislation? Or do you think it's more important that they're mature enough to take it seriously? I'm Joe Lauder, it's a Friday shake-up, and we're going to be chatting about a new push to let 16-year-olds vote. Do you think they're ready for it? Plus, should we ban cats? I'm probably going to get cancelled for this show. But Australian cats kill half a billion animals every year. Over 320 million of them are native animals. So, I don't know, do you think, is it time to ban them? Or at least stop them going outside at night? Text in on 0439757555. Now, to chat about these issues, I've got a couple of great guests with me. I've got Georgie Purcell. She's an animal justice MP in the Victorian Parliament. She's the youngest woman in Victorian Parliament at the moment. If you haven't seen her on socials yet, I think it's safe to say in the best way possible, Georgie isn't a typical politician. Georgie, what's been your favourite part of the job so far? You've just been there for six months, right? Yeah, g'day. Thanks for having me on. Look, I think my favourite part of the job so far is what you said before, is showing Victorian people, particularly young people, that you don't have to look or act like a politician to be in politics. And I think it's very important to bring your whole self to the job and makes voters and constituents believe in you a little bit more and see themselves a little bit more. So I think it's sort of not changing myself now that I'm in this position and just bringing my whole and true self unpolished to the people that, you know, follow me and vote for me. Yeah, absolutely. And we've also got Patrick Lenton with us. He's a freelance writer. He's also the Deputy Arts and Culture Editor at The Conversation. Patrick, you've been on The Shake Up before, but welcome back. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. All right, let's get into that discussion that George has already started about politics and especially about women in politics. Hack. I was afraid to walk out of the office door. I would open the door slightly and check the coast was clear before stepping out. On Triple J. Yeah, once again, there's been a lot of discussion this week about the experiences of women in politics. It comes after the federal independent senator Lydia Thorpe used parliamentary privilege to accuse a Liberal senator of harassment. That senator has denied the allegations. Hack. As all women that have walked the corridors of this building know it is not a safe place. I do find it, you know, somewhat triggering some of these conversations, I think, as many other people in our community um, do, and I know that many other people here in Parliament House do. The work that we've done on Jenkins, on respect at work, on asking women to come forward when something happens to them, and then treating women the way they are being treated right now, it says something about this. On Triple J. Yeah, and so once again, because of all of that, the biggest topic this week has really been around women's safety and the experiences of women in Parliament House and, yeah, what it's like for women to be in politics these days. Georgie, in a lot of ways, um, you, you know, you're one of the perfect guests to talk about this. As we said, you're a young woman. You came into politics, it's fair to say, not through the traditional political path. And you're really there shaking up the old guard in Victorian Parliament. Were you worried about how you'd be treated if you got into politics? Was that a factor before you decided to run? Yeah, it was the biggest factor by far. In fact, I almost didn't do it because 
I didn't know if I could endure what I knew was coming. And once I got elected, I knew it was inevitable. And to be honest, it's probably been worse than I ever expected. Yeah, really. I was going to ask what it's been like. So it's been worse than you were even anticipating. Yeah, that's right. Every single day I will receive something, whether it be, you know, a phone call, an email, a Facebook message, an Instagram message saying something either highly sexualized or violent to me. And I hate to say this, but I'm almost used to it. And I think that's incredibly unhealthy. Like I acknowledge that it's wrong and it's not okay, but it doesn't affect me anymore. And that that really scares me. Yeah. And actually, I've got a clip here of you that I'm going to play, but this was you talking about some of those messages, like I said, that you get every single day and you called them out and you actually wore an outfit on International Women's Day. We'll just hear you talking about it. It says brain dead bimbo, trash, skank, scrag. Your voters deserve to know you're a whore. Problem is, it's not just misogyny in politics. We receive it on probably a bigger level because we're in public life, but it's changing the attitudes of men across the whole country because, you know, online abuse is rife for us as female MPs, but it's rife for women everywhere. And the answer is that men need to do better. Yeah, you've been pretty honest about your past and, you know, you're talking even in another video about how you put out a video of you pole dancing in a campaign video. So people knew kind of what you'd been up to in some senses before politics and you wore that outfit on um, International Women's Day. But did you worry a bit that almost like talking more about this blowback almost kind of like might turn other people, I don't know, turn other people off politics and other young women off politics? Yeah, absolutely. I call out the sexism and the violence and the misogyny I receive because I know it often disarms these people and it scares them because what they want by giving me that is for me to be small and to be quiet and to be terrified and I want to show them that that won't happen. However, I do have a fear every single time I raise the way that I'm treated or talk about what someone has said or done to me, that a young woman is is looking at me, which is a large, large part of my audience, and thinks I could never go into politics. And I want young people to go into politics. I want young women and, you know, more gender diverse people in politics. And I'm worried that the way I'm treated could scare them away. Oh, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I see not just your experience, but lots of women in politics. And you just think sometimes, and I've had this conversation with so many people, you're like, why? Like, I just, it, it, yeah, it makes you really struggle to think like if you could picture yourself doing it. Patrick, when you see and hear about that kind of blowback that Georgie gets, because, you know, she's come up, you know, like through different pathways, and like you said, you know, representing like a different constituent to people that have traditionally been represented in politics. I mean, even as a guy, do you think that turns people, and young people, do you think it turns people off politics just hearing about that kind of culture there? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a real lack of faith in politics and politicians in general, especially from young people who really haven't seen much in the way to give them any kind of hope or faith in that kind of institution. And so when they see the main stories coming back to them about what it's like to be a woman in politics is being horrifically abused, uh, you know, online, offline, everywhere. I think that that's a real, like, like that, that defines what the job is to them and also just kind of turns them further and further away from having any trust in politicians. Do you think it's changing though? Because I do like reflecting back even, for example, um, you know, with Julia Gillard with the misogyny speech, but just how she was treated in politics. Some of the things that were said, and she was the prime minister at the time, it, it's hard to imagine that being said today about about a prime minister. Do you think there has been, obviously not enough, but some change? 
I think there is a little bit of change. Uh, I think that um, certainly politicians, like, you know, even in the US, like um, uh, AOC, you know, kind of uh, being very loud and proud about who they are, that does change things a little bit. But I also think that there is this weird double standard going on where people are really willing to look back on the misogyny speech and cheer for it and then not provide any... Uh, any of the same sort of support to current women who are in politics, it's all sort of fine if it happened in the past and they no longer have to deal with it because she's out of politics, but the people who are actually dealing with it now, they're not giving the same sort of love to. Georgie, um, in a lot of ways you followed in the footsteps of Fiona Patton and she was elected as a sex party MP at the time. She copped a lot of similar criticism at the time. Did seeing her there in Parliament make it easy for you to feel like you could enter that space? Yeah, in fact, I get asked this question a lot about sort of what changed your mind. So obviously I've been very open about the fact that I used to be a stripper. Fiona was a former sex worker. I thought it was my biggest weakness and the thing that would be used against me. And I'm often asked what changed my mind. And I'd almost say it was solely Fiona. She's a very close friend of mine and, and a bit of a mentor. And I actually confided in her one night when I was being encouraged to run. And I hadn't been open about my past with my colleagues and my party. And I said, I think I need to own this myself before or someone does it for me if I'm going to go for this. And we'd had a few drinks and she just said, Georgie, the moment will come when you know it's the time to do it and I can guarantee you it will be the most liberating moment of your life. And then a few months later, I did it. I just sort of put it out there in an opinion piece and I love that I can control my narrative now, but, but it's still a problem that I felt that I had to do that because I'm celebrated for my past by a lot of people and... Um, it also terrifies me, though, that if I didn't own that, someone would have told that story for me without my consent. Do you think as well that you would have been, if you're running, say, if you wanted to run for one of the major parties, do you think you would have been pre-selected or do you think that that's kind of like a different gatekeeping um, system around who gets yeah. pre-selected? I don't think any of the major parties would have someone like me, no. It's something that I hope is changing by seeing people like me in Parliament and that I do have, you know, good support and I'm changing things and, you know, that they don't need to be afraid of people with, you know, colourful backgrounds or different backgrounds to most politicians. We have enough lawyers in there. We need people with more diversity. I say that I'm a lawyer, by the way. We need a diversity of voices. And I think, you know, particularly when we're making decisions every single day that affects the lives of so many people, we need that lived experience in there, which is something that, you know, I feel that I can bring with some of the things that I've done in my past. Patrick, do you think what we're hearing about what's going on in um, federal politics, also in Victorian politics, is treatment of women, do you think it's a reflection of politics in this country? Is this also saying something more broadly about society or is it a bit of column A and B? I think it's probably both. I would say that uh, it would be silly to look past, uh, you know, specific instances of rot in specific politics and, you know, uh, in Parliament House, in you know, in state politics, all that sort of thing. But it is reflective. The reason why we're getting so many stories about politicians and politics is because they are just people who have more scrutiny on them, you know. This is happening in every single industry. This is, you know, this abuse against women. You know, like, uh, when I had... Um, young women uh, journalists working um, with me, quite often I would sort of say, okay, um, if you're going to write this story, 
you know, should we take your name off the byline, should, you know, or should we take it somewhere else? Because if you write this one, it's going to just result in two weeks of horrific abuse for you. And, you know, as an editor or, you know, or as, you know, your friend, I don't want you to have to endure that, especially when they're young and they might not have ever had that happen to them before. And Georgie, for you, like, obviously it comes with a lot of challenges. Like you said, you get comments um, every day, lots of criticisms, but also it sounds like you're also, um, not not that you're owning that, but you're owning your place in Victorian Parliament. It sounds like you don't regret going and, like, entering that space and challenging it. No, I don't regret it one bit. I think, you know, uh, if I do four years in there and the only thing that I achieve is, you know, people have looked at me and think I could give politics a go, then I would consider it absolutely worth it. And I do talk a lot about some of the awful things that I receive, particularly online, but it's always very important for me to counter that by saying, you know, I, I woke up yesterday morning, for example, to a number of Instagram messages. One of them said, uh, will you please sit on my face? And then I had two <laughs> others that um, were off former or current sex workers who were interested in politics and said, I've never seen someone like me reflected in that place before. It gives me hope and it makes me think that I could do it. And for me, that makes it all worth it. Absolutely. All right, let's talk a bit more about young young people getting involved in politics. Hack. 16, 17-year-olds are given so many responsibilities. We can work, drive, pay taxes and so on. And so we really do believe that we should be given this right to vote. Triple J. If you just tuned in, I'm Joe Lauder and you're listening to the Friday Shake Up on Hack. It's where we toss up the biggest stories and the biggest issues of the week. We're going to say some controversial things in a little bit about cats, the usual. Um, already a lot of people, someone says yes to banning cats. I'm a cat owner and I've seen what they do. I'll never own another one. That's coming up pretty soon. But right now, do you think it's time that we let 16-year-olds vote at elections? A lot of the issues that politicians decide on every day are going to affect young people. So should they get a say in who's representing them? If you're one of those people that's listening now and thinking, no, they don't care enough about politics to vote. All right. But by saying that, do you mean that only people who are engaged in politics should be voting? There was a campaign that launched this week to push for the voting age to be lowered to 16. And it even had support from some politicians in federal politics. Hack. It doesn't seem right that we're not giving young people a chance to participate in democracy. No one in this country has a greater stake in our future than younger Australians. I'm kind of not voting because I don't really guess I keep up with the, like what's going on with the government. It's kind of sad that I don't do that, but I'm really busy. Voting in Australia has got to be one of the most unique experiences. Hey, could I get the paper to vote? This is longer than my will to live. We're the people that will inherit the consequences or benefits of what our governments do right now. People going to the polls, but more importantly, they're getting the important stuff. Ah, the democracy sausage. On Triple J. Yeah, what do you think? Do you think it's a good idea to let 16-year-olds vote? Call in on 1300 055536 or text in on 0439 757555. We've already got some opinions on this. Someone said, I know 16-year-olds who are invested, mature and knowledgeable enough to vote. There are 40-year-olds who aren't. Not enough people know anywhere near enough about politics, economics or humanities to be given the responsibility of voting. Patrick, if you, looking back to you at 16, would you have wanted to vote back then? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I would not say that I came from like a, you know, particularly intellectually engaged 
family or anything, but we always talked about politics and we were always expected to have at least ethical opinions on what was happening, if not political opinions. Um, and so I, I thought it was pretty normal for, uh, you know, for there to be political discussions around the dinner table. And so I would have really liked to have voted. And the interesting thing is I probably would have voted exactly the same as I vote now. What about you? I'm going to say, Georgie, that you were someone who was engaged in politics at 16. Yeah, I mean, I think I probably need to say from the outset that, like, when I was nine years old, I wrote and performed a song called uh, Polling Booth Rock to my family. <laughs> so I'm probably an outlier, but um, absolutely, I would have loved to have voted at 16 years old. And, you know, I look at young people now and they are so uh, politically engaged on the issues the thing is, they're just not as involved in party politics. But, mm. you know, we don't give young people enough credit for the, you know, the issues they care about and are passionate about and believe in and want to see change. I also think that um, a lot of the time it's really patronising when people are like 16-year-olds, you know, they're not smart enough to engage in politics. I was like, I peaked at 16. Mm. I was writing political essays about the Cold War and, like, I couldn't do that now. I feel like, I yeah, I feel like it really underestimates a lot of 16-year-olds. Um, but also, Patrick, I guess that's an interesting point, but what do you think would change or do you think would be different if we did allow 16-year-olds to vote? Do you think we'd get different politics or different issues that are brought to the fore? Yeah, I think so, because their their perspective is always going to be quite different to, uh, you know, for example, a boomer voting bloc, uh, sort of what we were talking about uh, a little bit before, in the sense of they're concerned about long-term future things. You know, they have they have to inherit, you know, the earth that, that we're going to live on. So they're going to be really engaged with a lot of specific issues about, you know, will the world survive? Whereas, you know, older people, I'm not saying all of them are not concerned about that, but they're also not going to be living uh, 80 years from now. So they're going to have a very, di- like, a difference in opinion. Um, you know, I did a, quite a lot of work with um, the School Strike for Climate Kids and, you know, that was not a hypothetical uh, issue for them. That that was them being like, how are we going to live to a ripe old age in the world as it currently is? So, you know, I think that that's, that's the kind of thing that we're going to see a lot more of Georgie, the campaign this week that was um, about lowering the voting age, it also tied it to better civics education at school. Do you think that's a problem now more generally that we don't learn about politics in a really deep way? I mean, you're the, was it, polling booth rock? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I could teach them. Um, (laughs) No, this is is something that I will absolutely get on my soapbox about and I have for such a long time is that I think it is so condescending to say young people don't care about politics or young people aren't politically engaged. I would go as far to say politics is almost set up to be intentionally hard to understand and it's the expectation on uh, anyone, no matter what their age is, to understand that is, you know, it's kind of unfair. I mean, there's people in parliament who don't understand parliament. How can we expect the normal person to have the time to learn? And I think if we, um, I think there's this fear about this civics education or teaching people about politics in schools because schools don't want to be political. But I think at the very least, you know, you don't have to be political. You need to teach them the power of their vote, how our voting systems work, because they're incredibly complex. They're different at state and federal levels. Teach people about their preferences and, you know, what voting can mean and how it can change things. Because, you know, as Patrick said before, um, on the school strike for uh, climate kids, in before the 20. 20- 16 federal election, more young people 
in Australia attended protests than ever before. Like these people are active and, you know, want change. We just need to give them, equip them with the tools to do so. And that responsibility shouldn't be on them. We've got so many messages coming in about this. Zane in Melbourne says, I know 35-year-olds that don't know enough about politics that are voting. Why does being 16 matter? Andy in Wollongong says, if you're old enough to pay taxes, you should be allowed to vote and decide how it's going to be spent. And then someone else this is really interesting because somebody else brought this up earlier in the week. It says, if there's a debate about young people being ready to vote, there needs to be a discussion about voting being mandatory. I know 10-year-olds that are smarter than 40-year-olds I know. This is really interesting because we got some earlier messages earlier in the week when we we're talking about this, about a similar point, and they really linked political engagement to voting. And they were saying, like, if you're not informed about voting, you shouldn't have to vote. Patrick, what do you think about that? Because actually Australia is an outlier internationally by having compulsory voting. Does that change your thinking about voting and compulsory voting at all? I would say that the one the one good thing Australia's done... Uh, the one. <laughs> we invented <laughs> Wi-Fi. Potentially the one good thing Australia's done politically is have mandatory voting. Uh, you know, I... I I was thinking about the um, the US and their lack of mandatory voting, um, and uh, I was thinking about how um, RuPaul on RuPaul's Drag Race will constantly um, be like, a, you know, do things at the end of the show, being like, "Go vote," and that's the sort of the limit of his activism and advocacy, just reminding people to vote. Whereas now with all the drag bans happening over there, he's actually been sort of almost radicalised into having a specific view and it's kind of politicised him. And I feel like that kind of like, oh, everyone go vote actually diminishes um, kind of understanding and engagement with politics and political issues in general. We've got Jay on the line here. Jay, um, I'll just get you to turn your radio down, but you're against the idea of 16-year-olds voting, is that right? Why is that? To a point, I am, but it's more, it's probably more because they're easily sort of manipulated. You haven't sort of been around long enough to understand ins and outs of the structure of the world. Like, I think the best example is maybe using like Greta Thunberg or whatever her name is. She's done lots of good, but in the long run, she's been very wrong many a times. Interesting. I've got someone in the studio shaking my head. Thanks so much for calling in, Jay, as well. Really appreciate you contributing. Hey, no, Patrick. Yeah. Shaking your head. I mean, if we're going to talk about, uh, you know, legitimacy to vote based on, you know, like being easy, easily manipulated, then we absolutely need to do some lessons in digital literacy for boomers who are being completely uh, bamboozled and hoodwinked by misinformation and disinformation online to the point where we can actually f- track that through Facebook to how Donald Trump got elected. You know, this is, these are old, fully grown adults completely being suckered in by fake news, you know, I think that young people are actually probably in a much better space to uh, to navigate this than they are. So many people messaging in on the text line. Someone says, if they want to, let them vote. It's an opportunity to encourage political engagement and it makes politics more relevant. That's from Coco. We've also got someone saying, easy, allow 16-year-olds to vote if they want. When they turn 18, it's mandatory. That was actually one of the suggestions that came up. Cluey says, I don't think it should be compulsory. Some people just aren't interested. I know I wasn't back when I was 16. Benny Penrith says, I'm a teacher and some of the kids don't even know who the Premier is. And just Jared just lastly says, I don't think people under 18 should vote. The older I get, the more I think about what an idiot I was back then. 
pack. Cats aren't just harmless purring balls of fur. They're also cold-blooded killers. On Triple J. Yeah, I'm just going to be upfront and say this. Is it time to ban cats? I'm going to put this out there. Um, I'm not a cat person. That's probably going to get me cancelled, but I'm putting, putting my biases out there. But we're talking about this because there was a really interesting ABC story this week about a town in Victoria called Halls Gap, which is in Gary Ward, which is in the, the Grampians. It's a beautiful national park and they banned cats 30 years ago. And the kind of funny thing is you might be like, yeah, how'd it go? But they um they didn't actually record any data, so they don't know if it was effective. They're like, we've got no cats, so that's it. But we don't actually know more broadly the difference that it made. But a lot of places have banned them around the world because of the impact on animals. And domestic cats in Australia kill over 500 million animals in Australia each year. And 320 million of them are native animals. So what do you think? Should we ban cats to save native animals? Is this like a vote for native animals? Or do you think cats should only be allowed to stay inside? We've got so many people already with very strong opinions about this texting in on 0439 75 7555. Another cat owner, yes, ban cats. I'd never buy another one. Now I know what it's like. Allow bilbies as pets instead. Georgie, you're an animal justice MP. Where do you sit on this? Yeah, look, I've got four cats. I've literally got a tattoo on my arm of a tombstone that says there better be cats. Like I, (laughs) I love cats, but I am the first person to acknowledge that they can be very savage to our wildlife. So I have a very strict rule. My cats don't go outside. Absolutely not. And uh, I think there's a really important, I I wouldn't say ban cats. Um, I'd like, you know, I think my people would disown me if I said ban cats, but um, I want to see a lot of changes made both at a a legislative level and a um, educational level for uh, cat owners about how we deal with this problem because, you know, we have a really uh, big community cat problem um, or as people say, you know, stray or feral cats. And then we have another really big problem of uh, people letting their cats roam outdoors and and it is having an impact on our wildlife and it's unsafe for the cats as well. Patrick, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I I don't have a cat, but I love cats. I've, you know, I've had family cats before. And one of the places where my family had a cat was in the Royal National Park in um, New South Wales. And uh, that cat was not allowed to go outside. Um, and I'm really glad it never did because someone else let their cat go outside. And it would, we would find the murdered uh, native animals like most mornings, and I would say murder because they weren't being killed to eat. You know, it was headless birds. Uh, They would just decapitate all these birds, and it was pretty horrifying. Georgie, you did mention that, like, you have some thoughts about, like, what we should be doing about this and kind of conversations that we need to be having. What what do you think is a good solution to this problem? So many people, like, I'm actually surprised how many people, even if they're um, not for banning cats completely... Plenty of people. Most people seem to think on the text line that they should be indoor only. Yeah. Is that like a logical step? What can we also do about the feral ones? Yeah, so something that's illegal in Victoria that other states have started trialling is uh, it's called trap neuter return uh, or TNR and it's quite controversial because it means capturing a introduced animal, desexing them and then putting them back where they came from. So people obviously don't like that idea because they're an introduced animal. But what it does mean is that they can't breed. And the biggest problem with cats is they breed like on a level that is hard to comprehend. Like one male cat can be responsible for thousands of kittens over their lifetime. So if 
I'd like to see where community cats are a big problem to have those animals captured, desexed, returned, and then eventually that cat population would diminish. Um, but I also think uh, we need to educate cat owners for owned cats about what it means to be responsible with your animal. And as I said before, um, letting cats roam is not only incredibly dangerous to wildlife, but it's it's dangerous to the cat as well. And, you know, I'm sure many people listening in have had a near miss experience with an animal on the road and you know cats and uh, quite regularly hit by cars it's distressing for the cat owners it's distressing for the person who does it and I think we really need to teach people around um, the fact that it is okay to have your cat inside as long as they have enrichment and all the things they need. And Patrick, you actually um, have a similar, or like, I know that you have um, a rescue dog, but you were saying like, there needs to be a broader conversation, not just about cats, but about like the responsibility of owning pets. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think a lot of that comes from uh, being very invested in kind of rescue dog ownership. Uh, And that comes a lot from the idea of animal cruelty, like, you know, cruelty towards those animals. Like I'm all for uh, being for rescue dogs, you know, and and encouraging people to rescue dogs, but that actually doesn't deal with the problem of why there are so many in the first place. And so I think that there is a a really big question about what responsibilities we have individually and as a society to uh, domesticated animals. We actually have a lot of responsibility for them. We've made those animals this way where they are reliant upon us and they do fulfil a function in our society. So there really should be some sort of, I guess, way of making sure that we are looking after them um, and not putting them in danger. Absolutely. Um, That's all we've got time for. Patrick Lenton from The Conversation, thank you so much for coming on. Georgie Purcell, Animal Justice Party. It's been so great to have a chat about this. Heaps of messages coming in. Someone says, I live in Halls Gap. Banning cats was a great idea. There are so many native animals running around. Absolutely ban cats. They are so lethal to our natives. Someone else, no bloody way. Cats shouldn't be banned. There are just owners that need to watch out. Amber in Kingscliff says, humans kill way more animals a year than cats. Lol, why don't we just cancel us? (laughs) (laughs) Seems like a funny note to end it on. Dave's going to be back next week. See you guys. Hi, on Triple Jack.